And I went into them and I said, so you guys are really good at what you do, but the corporate world doesn't really know about you. And actually, that's where a lot of the budgets are going to be because they're, you know, the theatre budgets are obviously going to be really tight. And I said, so what you really need is a marketing department. And to be specific, you need a marketing manager. And to be really specific, you just need me. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network a not-for-profit organisation with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on the show today, I sit down with Ronan Healy, the CEO and founder of Catapult, an events production agency with offices in Dublin, New York, and LA. So sometimes our career paths can come from the most surprising of places. It can take a random event to even become aware of a career opportunity that you never knew existed. And in Ronan's case, he was studying psychology in UCD, and he wasn't really sure where life was going after graduation. And then by chance, he was asked to do the PR for a charity fashion show in the college. And the work that he did for that show would end up catching the attention of a lot of people in the marketing and events industry in Dublin. And from that, the charity show ended up becoming the catalyst for starting Catapult, which would become Ireland's first events production agency. And since Catapult opened in 1999, they have done some iconic events in Ireland, like Arthur's Day, The Web Summit, and more recently, Sastock. And they've also expanded globally and done work with brands like Nasdaq, Elon Musk's Hyperloop One, the Festival of Speed, and many, many more, some of which we got to discuss in this interview. And really what Catapult have done is they've made a name for themselves as a very creative agency, the ability to really bring their creative skill sets to putting on an event. And I knew this before I met Ronan, so when I sat down, I expected I was going to be speaking with this really creative and artsy character. And although Ronan definitely has an appreciation for the arts, he is so much more than just a creator. He's a marketer, a strategist, and a big picture thinker. And I think that's what's helped him build Catapult into a globally recognised agency in an industry that can be extremely challenging, especially when economic downturns come around. So when Ronan and I sat down to chat, I was really interested to learn about where it all began for him, and most importantly, where this interest in putting on a show comes from. What were you like as a kid? I'm very curious about it. (laughs) Who do you ask? It depends who you ask, doesn't it? (laughs) Um... I was like, so first of all, glasses and not good at sport. And, you, you know, that that's always the start in Ireland. So you just go. Where did you grow up in Ireland? Couldn't see the ball. Like, I mean, <laughs> um, I grew up in Black Rock. So Dean's Grange graveyard backed onto the back of it. Literally, that's where my parents still are. Um, so not particularly good at sport at all. And obviously very clever. So therefore, one of those people <laughs> who would do quite well in class and sporty. So are not sporty. So straight away, you you, you know, you can capacious to picture that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was someone who was always quite giddy and mischievous, probably. And I talked far too much, I think, from the start. That bit's never really changed. So the only time I'd ever get into trouble in school is for talking, basically. Never for doing anything wrong, because I was far too well behaved. And I think when I was kind of hitting teenagers, I just began to realize that you could take advantage of of that, uh, of being perceived that way, you know. Um, I never went particularly wild. I wouldn't claim to have been. But it was one of those ones, I think my curiosity kind of pushed me to say yes to just about whatever was going on. If there's a thing on, I'll go, yeah, I'll go to that. doesn't matter what it was. I was just intrigued and I loved being around people. What age was that at where that kind of took a turn? Probably realistically around 15, 16, I would think. Yeah, that that being very open to whatever else was going on around me and it didn't matter whether I theoretically fitted in or not. I was like, so I would have not been good at art and not good at sports. Not good at art? No, not at all. I was terrible at drawing. Were you creative when you were growing up? I was really good at colouring in and I won a colouring in competition <laughs> when I was 12, if you like. So... Theoretically, if you call that, but that nobody else calls that art, particularly back then. And I certainly didn't. I was terrible at painting and still am. I mean, I have a six year old niece who's better at drawing a cow than I am, you know, but I'm really good at saying what color should be and getting the shading right. Now, I did play music, but music wasn't really rated as creative, wasn't spoken about in the same kind of words. And was there what kind of household did you grow up in? Were your, did your, what did your parents do for work? So um, my mother worked in the Italian Cultural Institute. So she spoke fluent Italian. Um, and my dad, uh, so mine's a little bit complicated with that one. So, That's uh, yeah, my dad lived in Venezuela, Singapore, Taiwan, Bangkok, 
and Ireland occasionally uh, and was in advertising actually so people said that's where you got it from and I'm like well you left when I was three so not really yeah but maybe genetically yeah and actually we have a very good relationship and he's fabulous actually um so it's interesting that you go I'm sure there was some kind of thing that that, that yeah maybe I, I he would have a very adventurous spirit as you could probably gather and I would have as a result. So there's definitely quite a lot of those traits come through. And do you think that you kind of got to recognize that adventurous spirit when you turned, like you said, at like 15, 16, when... Yeah, I think it was just, I probably would have been quite a conventional kid. And then you kind of realize that as you get older, you become slightly less conventional. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, one of them was, was, was yeah, that kind of sense of uh, curiosity and very much openness to whatever was going on around me. Another one was realizing as you're a teenager at some stage, fairly late teenager, now in fairness, that I was attracted to guys much more so than girls. I always knew both were attractive, but I was beginning to start leaning more towards the, the guys thing. And this is in 1990, 91, 92. Homosexuality was decriminalized in Ireland in 1993. So I finished college in 1993, and that was the year that homosexuality was decriminalized. So you go, so you also that is part of you kind of going, you're trying to figure out your identity. And did you have a sense of yourself as to where you, uh, how you wanted to see yourself and where you wanted to go as you approached not college? Not at all, no, not at all. I just, I did, uh, I did arts because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was thinking, no, arts would be a lovely one. And actually, I specifically liked the idea of doing psychology. So that's what my main degree was, was second and third year I did pure psychology. Um, and that was kind of my reason for going in there. But it also trains you in everything and nothing at the same time, which is the whole point. But what it really did is open up your mind a lot more so because you've just gone through the educational system and been told what everybody else decides you need to be told and then so you, you were saying that it, it psychology taught you everything and taught you nothing but during that time now your 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 wings are starting to spread you're starting to immerse yourself in different things that you didn't realize interested you beforehand mm. What did you see for yourself then as, as college came to a close? Where, where did you see? Well, that's where one of those opportunities come up that at the time you don't realize is going to be life changing. So UCD always ran this charity fashion show for the Simon community. And um, I was asked to do the PR for it. And traditionally what they'd done for the PR was just get a whole load of very pretty models and do a balloon release on Grafton Street. Now, I would just find that really boring. So I said, why don't we do something more interesting? The show is called Let's Go to the Movies. So every single routine that was done had... A different movie theme so from thriller to to rocky horror or whatever so what we ended up doing for the i decided we'd do for the pr for the press shoot was to have somebody dressed up as dorothy somebody dressed up as charlie chaplin somebody dressed up as one of the 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 rocky horror characters so like really obvious iconic cinematic cinematic personas and then we just put them in front of the irish times and said it's going to be here at this time on a day and photographers from every single newspaper turned up I got amazing shots of like Dorothy leapfrogging Charlie Chaplin this kind of stuff and as a result it got into every single newspaper and actually again on the weekends because the shots were brilliant so we suddenly got all of this publicity and it kind of went so well that it got obviously completely sold out and so on and as a result the um people who run all the 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 committees basically asked me would I produce the event the next year and that was the first time where you're going well I did this job kind of by mistake and was great fun. That does not mean that I'm a producer. And as a result of that specific job, people came up to me after and said, OK, well, what are you doing when you finish college? Would you like a job in production? And I was going, I'm doing psychology. So I had a nice opportunity to kind of sit back and have a little bit of thinking going, well, actually, I loved doing that. And let's just do it for a while and see what happens. But Ronan didn't end up taking a job in events production straight out of college. It's actually what I ended up doing. So I worked for um, a below the line advertising marketing agency. Um, for a year, and then I transferred across to a th- company called uh, Arena Construction, who built film sets, TV sets, theater sets. And I went into them and I said, so you guys are really good at what you do, but the corporate world doesn't really know about you. And actually, that's where a lot of the budgets are going to be, because they're, you know, the theater budgets are obviously going to be really tight. And I said, so what you really need is a marketing department, and to be specific, you need a marketing manager, and to be really specific, you just need me. And instead of throwing me out, they said yes. So I basically created a job in there. And that was an incredible experience, actually, because you're working in a huge, big warehouse with a a, a chippies at the back. There was a lighting company upstairs and you can just learn so much by watching. And again, that's that curious part. So I would go in and go, you know, what does that do? And they're like, honestly, throwing their eyes up to heaven, going, would you get rid of your man, please? He's like stopping me from working. But I would just ask loads of questions. And I loved being in that environment. And that was probably real the the start of Catapult, because what happened is they would have certain clients who would come to them and say, okay, we want this. And I would go and help design it and then go to our own in-house team and say how much to build it with the chippies and the painters and installation and all that. And then go back to the client and say, all right, well, this is the price. 
And initially, I used to get the price from from my boss, obviously enough. But then I would have a much, in my mind, I'd be like, no, no, we can charge a different way. And actually, if we add in this and so on. So I started in the budgets quite quickly. And once I did that, I was like, this is actually part of it that I really enjoy as well as not just the hands-on piece. How old were you at this stage, Roman? 23 and 24, I think. Wow. Yeah. 23, 24. 24 probably. And then 1996, yeah. And then I went traveling. And I kind of had this thing that if I didn't go traveling then, I had a feeling that I just mightn't. You might miss the boat. Yeah. So I just um, went traveling to Australia. I just went off. I had a load of friends over there, over there as every Irish person does, you know. I went to Sydney and got a job in the Sydney Opera House as a waiter which I loved, but part of the, one of the highlights was that like where you went for your break was the green room. And there like you could see all of the backstage for all of the, the four different stages that they would have had and all the performers going past and you could be literally having a sandwich and four ballerinas would go past and you're just going, oh, and a Viking. So I loved that kind of side of things and I think it just kind of appealed to my sense of, of, of surreal, shall we say. And of course, somewhere like, the, you know, as iconic as that has like really high-end production teams. Um, you'd be literally working in the restaurant and was the outside section was the concourse. Um, so you're looking at this beautiful, iconic building. And then on certain days, they would be projecting onto it and doing these massive, large-scale outdoor projections and turning the, it into like into a shoal of fish or wherever else it might be. And so you're just seeing this very high international level of, of production and going, all right, well, this exists. This is amazing. And actually, the only thing that, that's limiting is your imagination because you can project anything you want onto the side of these this famous building. Did you have ideas popping off in your mind at this stage thinking, was, was your business mind going in motion thinking, I could, I could do this back in Ireland or were you just in appreciation of it at the I time? I think it was just more in appreciation. It wasn't as blunt as I'll do this in Ireland because I think if I had sat in Sydney and said I'm going to go home and do this, I probably would have intimidated myself, you know, and possibly not done. I'm a little bit more happy-go-lucky than that. And when I went back to Ireland... I kind of arrived back age 27, essentially, with like no job and no money. And of course, everybody goes, well, you know, what are you doing now? So when I came home, I automatically went and started waitering because it was by easy default just to get some, some cash in. And again, one of those serendipitous things happened where the construction company I'd worked for had a lighting division. And the guy set that up was a guy called Dieter Hartfield. And he, while I was away had been asked to um, set up his own lighting company with Cine Electric. And when he heard I was back, he asked me to meet me for a coffee. And he said, right, well, I assume you're going to set up your own event agency. And I was like, I have that in the back of my head, but not just yet. Why? And he said, well, if you want to, I'll give you a free office. Like, you have it completely for free. And all you have to do is when you do an event, use our lights for it. And I was like, OK, because it cost him nothing. It was an empty space in the warehouse. So you have nothing to lose apart from a bit of time and possibly a bit of pride. And who was your, who was your first client? What was the first? What was My the first, first big one was Siemens, actually. Wow. Yeah, which was like just kind of a, I think, I mean, I always think of these things when you go, how exactly did I do that? I can't remember exactly. And were you still waiting tables at this time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But I, I did. I mean, I really enjoyed that job. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to get rid of that job until I knew I was completely safe. Because the problem is like, so even with someone like Siemens who were great and would pick easy figures, like if they gave you 20,000 pounds to do the event at the time, because this was in the very early 90s or late 90s, um, A, you didn't know when you were going to get the money. And when you did, you obviously had to pay all your suppliers and you didn't know what was left. And whatever was left, you didn't know how long that had to last you until the next job. And even if you got the next job, when they were going to pay you. So I just basically used the waitering as that was my salary. So that's what I lived on. And then anything that came into Catapult stayed in Catapult and was used for Catapult bills like suppliers and phones, basically. And it was only when you get to a certain stage that you go, well, now it can pay me a salary. And that was kind of how I built it that way. And what point, what point did it get to where you could stop waiting tables and you were now able to sustain yourself with? How long did that take? it was probably a year, but I, I waited two, two years because I really enjoyed it. So basically I did full-time waiting for the first year. And then the second year, I think I would just like pick my shifts. So I do two or three shifts a week because I enjoyed it. And it was just really easy to, to keep that in. There was no harm in keeping the money in, in the company. Were you starting to find your sweet spot in terms of like what kind of events you were doing? What, what, what people were responding well to? Yeah, so that's where the taste for the surreal thing kind of came up. Because initially it was always the more bizarre stuff. So we did 30 foot inflatable bottles of Heineken on the Liffey and through, you know, music bands on them at lunchtime. It was called ambient advertising at the time. Um, and we started doing a lot of what that. What do they mean by that, by ambient advertising? So ambient advertising was anyone that wasn't the big four. So it wasn't TV, radio, press or posters. Okay. Um, so it could be from you're in your car park and 
the barrier says, don't you wish you topped up as it goes in front of you? So it's ambient advertising is kind of the idea. It's where you don't expect it to be. So the recall on it would be much higher. So they would say that the recall on it, one of those big 40 HP posters on the side of a building is roughly 15%. So 15% of people remember what they, what poster they saw and what brand it was for. If you put a 30-foot inflatable bottle of Heineken on the Liffey and ask people did they see it and what brand was it for, your recall was probably around 65% maybe. So therefore, you could say, well, this is worth more than four times as much. And that's ambient advertising at its simplest. So we ended up, weirdly enough, and you do, this happens, I think, in the events, that, that, that events industry, you kind of get a, a name for a specific kind of niche-ish. So can you bring me forward now a bit into like the mid-2000s where you've been doing this for five, six, seven years. Mm. I'm sure you start to feel like you're getting into your groove. Where, where were you guys at if you kind of bring it to, say, 2006? The Irish economy is rocking. Yeah. Um, everybody's on a high. Even the postman has three properties. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, festivals was really good. So we started working on um, one of our big turnarounds because it was a couple of challenging years as you go up and down with all of it. It's not, not, you know, it's not a straight 45-degree uh, angle trajectory, which would be nice. Um, Were there some hairy moments in those opening four or five years? Where Yeah, one of the big ones was the dot-com bubble burst. And that had an impact on us just in that there was conferences that were beginning to get booked in and then weren't happening. And then there was a huge big thing with foot and mouth. And that sounds ridiculous, but foot and mouth, when that happened, it was the year that um, St. Patrick's Festival was actually moved. Because I think it moved to June or something like that because... The government put out uh, an edict saying that we weren't allowed to have huge, big mass gatherings because of foot and mouth disease. And we had just signed a deal with um, Board Ishkiwara, where we were doing this really small, it was a lovely little local launch, and maybe it was £20,000. But it was going to go to seven or eight places around the country. So that's £160,000, which is massive for a tiny company. And the whole thing got pulled because we weren't allowed, the government were allowed to be seen to do any anything which got people congregating at the time. And it was only for the... Like probably a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, say it was over two months or three months. And that was at the time when we were literally just going, okay, here's a huge big break. And it just got pulled from under you through nobody's fault. And you're going, okay, well, where does that budget then come from? And do you hire people to service that account? And the next thing it gets pulled for nobody's fault. In a, in a job like that, that, would you have lost out on any money or it was just that you were expecting that? I that think was... it was more that you're expecting it and you're kind of hiring up for it and all that kind of stuff. Um so they were, those, those two were definitely ones that kind of hit us a little bit. And then the thing that really turned around is in 2004, if I remember right, we um, ended up working with uh, the PR agency Edelman. We got asked to work on Bud, Budweiser's music campaign, which is called Bud Rising. And it was starting then. And we ended up doing every single Bud Rising gig that was held in the country, just from sometimes from an entire production point of view and a lot of them just from the branding point of view. So that was literally, we'd do an event in, in uh, Roisin Dove in Galway, or we would end up doing a gig in Lansdowne Road, which it was at the time with the Scissor Sisters with 40,000 people. And it was an incredible thing to be part of. And that was every level of doing promotion. We had to you know hire 10 cars and brand them and get all the promo staff and all that kind of stuff. So I think once you kind of got like a really solid client like that, who's got quite a lot of different clients themselves and activity, and then other... PR agencies like WHPR we would have worked with and then we ended up working with them a lot on, on Guinness and Arthur's Day. And our experience came from, well, we know how to brand. I do, I suppose, essentially, you know, beer branding in just about any venue in the country because that's what we did with Budweiser. And actually, that's nearly exactly the requirement that we had for 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 um, Arthur's Day. A wonderful event that we all remember very fondly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that first one was amazing because I think nobody knew how the entire country just seemed to take to it. How did your competitors do when the recession came around? Did, did, it, did it change the dynamic of the whole industry? Oh, it did. I think it, 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 it definitely did in that, I mean, some of the really good agencies, creativity was basically began to be valued by the clients. That was really important. So the clients were 100% focused on value and the kind of cookie cutter ones weren't working anywhere near as well. And then one or two of our competitors were just unlucky where they had been in a position where they had two or three really large clients and say two of them were banks. That's like 60 something percent of their business is gone. So they, they, they're, some of them are still going. They just took quite a while to recover from and they had a really tough time for it. And again, sometimes the tenacity is like fair, you know, fair dues to you still here. Um, 
But at the time, I certainly knew one that had maybe like 12 people and then had to go down to three. And I mean, that's that's tough thing to do. So walking us through those early stages of the recession, you you were lucky because you said you only lost about 20 percent of your client base at that time because you were you were you yeah. diversified your pool of your clients enough that. Diversified your pool of your clients, but actually diversified the, the the type of events that you did. I mean, all I was doing at the time is you go initially saying, well, what I need to do is cover everybody's wages. That's what I have to do this year and everything above and beyond. Is did it get stressful? I don't really get too stressed. The only time, if you ask the guys in the office now, I'm sure they'd laugh at me. But you go, January and February were always one of those ones you'd end up at the end of the year. And and I don't know why, but like when we look at the events, it's always really busy September, October, November, December. So you end up having quite a nice run to the end of the year. And then in January, you're like, right, I have to do this all over again. And where is it going to come from? And sometimes that's the bit that you can definitely get worried, particularly in like 2009 or 10, and saying, where is it going to come from? But what you are looking at is the ones that you do every year. Then I said they might have reduced budgets. But when you know you've got that guaranteed work coming in, you kind of use that as your um, as your uh, your 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 buffer, kind of. The, your, yeah, your buffer, and it's also your launch pad. Was there was there a turning point then where you started to feel that the the dread and the the kind of you know doom that was always kind of lingering in the background of the recession? Yeah. Was there a point where that turned and you felt like things were on the up and up? Yeah, well, I think we were lucky because we because we were relatively unscathed that we didn't have too much of that dread piece. I think what really seemed to happen was uh, twenty thirteen for some reason is the one that's in my head where it became. I must say you're extremely fortunate to have that though because it, it you you have obviously put together a great business or it's kind of you well, know yeah that's the great team as well and so first of all our own internal team but also clients and suppliers because. I mean, when you look at the very, very start of the business, the way you landed, like from a cash flow point of view, to persuade vendors who'd never used you before to give you credit, saying, I'm not going to pay you until I get paid by the client. And then A, trusting you and B, you obviously, you know, fulfilling your word and so on. And it just means that you, once you have those really strong relationships, obviously internally for a start, but also actually with the client side and really importantly, the supplier side, we really found that that's what kept you kind of a float because you've got a couple of different things to lean on so if you're really tight in cash flow for one month you can say to all your suppliers i'm going to pay you half of it now and the other half in two months time and they trusted you because they have these years of experience with you and then even with clients sometimes they would do the other thing where they would say okay well actually we need to get paid deposits in advance and all this kind of stuff and they were just a bit more flexible because they knew you entrusted you at that stage and i think the diversity of what we were offering was the big thing that really, really helped us get through it. So because we didn't have to let anybody go, because we only lost around 20% of the business and actually built it up relatively quickly because, I mean, when you think something like Arthur's Day came on in 2009 and that filled a very large hole because the first one was was obviously the biggest. Um, I'm trying to think, and I'm nearly certain that we started working with Web Summit in 2010. Um, so that's another one. At the time, there was, there was, I mean, the budgets were tiny because it was only 1,000 people. But you just go that that started to have its own momentum, quite obviously. So like by 2012, 2013, you'd already done two or three of the Arthur's Days. You have um, WebSummit, which has these massive legs and turning into this huge, big, huge, big, obviously, event. Um, and then there's all your other clients beginning to get more confidence in spending money. And for those who don't know, WebSummit, which started out with a thousand people at the first conference, Ended yeah. up growing to uh, 70,000, 70, the largest tech conference in the world, would it be considered? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was that was all born in Dublin. That was that was all started. Was the first one that you guys did for a thousand people? Where was where was that? Held? So their very first one, actually, I think was in it was for 500 people in a lecture hall. And then the first one that we did, so it was their year two, was in the RDS in in two halls, actually. Um and that was 1,000 people. And then the following year was 3,000 people. And I'll never forget, it was 3,000 people. And we thought this was amazing, fabulous job. And it was all finished. Like when, when the event was over and Paddy Cosgrave, as the founder, came over and, and said, well, next year it's going to be, you know, 10,000 people. And I was looking like you had two heads going, all right, well, you know, I love your love your vision, but like realistically, probably be four or five. And he was 100% right. It was 10,000 people. And the following year was close to 20,000 people. And those productions of Web Summit introduced Catapult to some of the biggest brands in the world, where they did work for companies like Dropbox and Nasdaq, and eventually worked with Elon Musk's Hyperloop One on their global exhibition in Berlin, as well as the pavilion at the Festival of Speed, which attracts over 200,000 attendees. But one question I had for Ronan was how these companies can validate that an event has been successful. 
Well, it to- that's what it's, so it totally varies, and it is probably the most important question you can ask at the very start. You get a brief from a client, you're going, what are you trying to achieve with this? So a really interesting one for us was, as a perfect example, was uh, a consultancy company, and they wanted to take a booth at one of a, a tech um at a tech conference, not the web, some of the different ones, a tech conference that we were working at. So we just designed, we wanted to design and build a booth for them. And we said, why are you at this tech conference? And what is it you're trying, why are you here? What do you want to get out of it? And they said, well, the reason we're coming to this one is because it's well known for gender parity. So it was 50-50, which a lot of the tech conferences are very male dominated. Um, and what we are having a challenge at the moment is we are finding it difficult to recruit female engineers. So that's why we're there. So we go, okay, so this is actually a recruitment drive. And then the whole of the design of the entire booth was based around making it really open, really interactive, really easy to engage people going past, rather than a showcase for the brand. It was actually more about making the really cool things a brand do, absolutely have them there, so they're really good talking points. But we had like baristas and all that kind of stuff, just so it became one of those stands that everybody kind of went over to at some stage while they were there. And at the start, we said, okay, well, that lovely question, what does success look like for you? And they said, well, if we get... Off the top of my head, I say, if we get like 14 solid leads to interview, we will be delighted. So 10, anything above 10, we're delighted. And they came out with 27. So they were going, well, that's three times nearly what we thought. But it also meant that you're helping your client, who's either the comms manager or the brand manager or the marketing manager, go back to procurement and say, come here to me. This is how I can justify the budget that I spent. So it's this really interesting thing of saying that, if we hadn't asked that question, we'd have just designed and built a booth to them and say, oh, you're this lovely brand. Let's go and say we're really cool because we're this brand. And you're going, irrelevant, really. You had to go and say, what is the nub? Why are you here? And how can we help you achieve that? For the exact same price that you always were going to spend, it's just making it a hell of a lot more efficient. Interesting. So, so, it's, so it's quite variable then on the basis of the client of, of, of what they're, you, you have to mold yourself around. What Some of them are just for. looking for a great video. Some yeah. of them are looking for like throughput of thousands of people and want, you know, to give the interviews afterwards and so on. And did there come a point where you, when you were looking at the growth of Catapult, that you recognize that for Catapult to continue to grow and to continue to get better and more creative, that you had to grow outside of Ireland? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, Ireland is still our headquarters. Ireland is still kind of the core of the, it's the engine, as we like to call it. Um, we do a huge amount of events based out there. We have a lovely reputation. We have lovely relationships with both clients and suppliers. But then the other thing is just when you look at the market in Ireland, first of all, it is it's it's small because for the clients it's small. So if you're talking to I don't know mini, just for instance, they've got a finite amount of minis that they're expected to send spell, sell in, in Ireland versus UK versus obviously the states. So of course their marketing spend is going to be a hell of a lot smaller, and that's nobody's fault. That's just the nature of it. And then the other thing is the Irish market has got more and more crowded because um, there's companies who say, "Oh, sure, I can do events," and they do them themselves. Some of them do them in-house. Some of the UK companies have set up little subsidiaries in Dublin, and it becomes quite cluttered sometimes. And Catapult expanded to the US in 2016, was it? Yeah, 2017, really. Yeah, I think we've signed it and signed, you know, officially set up as our first gigs there in 2017, realistically. So yeah, two, nearly two years now. What was your, what was that first gig that you had? That was the one on, on the island in Governor's Island. So that was, oh, that was okay. beautiful. Um, but we've been really lucky with what we did. We just, we've only been here less than two years. And some of the clients we worked with and some of the projects we worked on, like we, Worked at South by Southwest with Universal Music and won a, a Clio Award with them for design and creativity, which is phenomenal. Wow. We did the oh, we did the launch of Ireland's United Nations Security Council campaign on the headquarters and the lawn of the headquarters in the United Nations with every country ambassador in the world and with the Taoiseach and the Tornish and Mary Robinson and Bono. And it's just one of these things where you go, how did we end up here? And then our single biggest one for here so far is this lovely one called Smart Cities New York. And that's like a large scale conference and and an event that is held in may in new york city and it's about the future of cities so the content that's in that is incredible because you're getting mayors out of you're getting literally all the stakeholders are saying well who decides what the future of these cities are and the vcs and the startups and you put them all in one room and you've everything from the future of transport to the future of education to the future of the environment and you just get to meet this phenomenal kind of cross-section of people okay so i've got a couple of questions for you what profession other than your own would you like to attempt if I could do any job in the world, I would love to be a musician, actually. Really? Mm. Going right back to where it all began? Yeah, if I could make my living by, ideally, I mean, I'm saying playing the guitar because that's the most realistic one. Do you sing? 
not very well now. Is so, that your uh, own critique or? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's everybody else's too, I can assure you. Uh, there's, there's no false humility there. <laughs> it's just true. Um, but I would, I think the idea of creating and making music with incredible musicians around the world would be an inc- a wonderful way to spend your life. Basically. Sure, it would be. I'd, I'd be up for that too. What's your favorite word? Probably super. 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 Yeah. You know, I've said super a lot since I super moved to America. Fabulous. What's your least favorite word? I have to go for that one, moist. Really? Yeah, yeah I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm too visual for that. See, that other word I can, you know, be, be really obvious and say, I don't like the word impossible. You know, <laughs> don't like I'm the word gonna, no. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to ask, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the following uh, words or names? Okay. Arthur Guinness. Oh, I was going to 250 is the first thing that comes into my mind. 250? <laughs> yeah, because it's 250th anniversary for Arthur's Day. So it was literally because we did these um, decals. So decals, when you, you you put an image on a window, like it's like the stickers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we literally did 250 as dots. We made them out of dots, I would say, in 100 places around the country. And that was all overnight on the first night, was it? Those when some of them could go in earlier, but the problem is taking the things off because you can put them on in one go. But if the if the number two is made out of 10 of those... And the number five, the number like that, that was the bane of our lives for a while. Um, and it was one of those, it was just a design thing where we we're like, when you put them on, you're like, I know this is not going to be easy, but it was one of those things that you hear the word Guinness and I go 250 because it's just, I was scraping them off. It's ingrained within you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Christmas parties. Drunk, I'm afraid. Aor and Vior. The future. And checklists. Organized. I love them. You love them? Yeah. Are you a very organized person? No. Do you turn that on when you when you turn up to work? Yeah, out? absolutely. I mean, I, I absolutely can be, but I have very good people around me. I'm one of those ones who just go, like, just remind me. I have no problem in saying, in people, like, nagging you two or three different times. I'd be quite good. I'm really good at prioritizing. And that's actually one of the essence of running a business, as I found out. There's always, always, always too much to do. Always. You'll never, you'll always have, whether it be marketing, whether it be HR, whether it be accounts, there's always something to do. And it's actually knowing what actually needs to be done, what needs to be done first, and when to switch off, because that's a huge part of it. Otherwise, you could far too easily work work far too much. So checklists are really good. I use them to empty my head, actually. I just have a checklist just to go, here's all the things I need to do, including if it's feed the cat. It's just to get it out of your head, and then you can look at it and prioritize it. So I use them that way. Interesting. And my final question for you, Ronan, is if you could go back and talk to young Ronan just after his first event for the Simon community at the RDS, what would you say to him? I think as I hold on to your hat, it's going to be one hell of a ride. It's been (laughs) an amazing amount of fun. Thank you so much, Ronan. All right. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. That was fun. That was Ronan Healy, a great conversationalist and a great guest. If you want to learn more about his company, just search thisiscatapult.com. They've got a really beautiful website with their past projects from around the world. Up next on this episode, we have our two startups. And in this particular case, both of the founders are based in New York City. With the recent introduction of Disney Plus and Apple TV, we have now entered the age of the streaming wars, where the largest streaming platforms are battling each other to capture our attention. And there is also an effort to bring more diversity to the content that these streaming giants are producing. And Emma Waldron, the founder of Wild, is building a platform that will capitalize on the shift towards streaming and give viewers an opportunity to express the kind of content that they want to see produced. 14,000 people cut their cords every day. And um, I started to notice that shift. And then, you know, I was with my friends uh, over the summer and any time there was a movie that was led by a woman, there was this chat on WhatsApp, like, we have to go see Booksmart. We have to go see Hustlers. Um, And there was this really big energy around female-led content. All of these things, the desire to have more female-focused content, the passion behind wanting equality and to close the gender gap um, and wanting to be represented more on screen, and then people cutting their cords and moving towards streaming platforms. Um, And so I thought about Wild, and Wild essentially um, is a female streaming platform for badass women. (laughs) A key mission for Wild is to improve diversity in all aspects of production, both on and off the screen. So we want to 
essentially change the way people look at diversity and inclusion in content and become the authority for that in a you know, authority has negative connotations in a way that's collaborative. So we will work with the studios and the production companies and help them to improve on their uh, inclusion and diversity um, hiring throughout the creative process. You know, at the moment, 24% of directors are women, 13% of uh, writers are women. So there's a massive problem. And then when you look at the numbers around people of color, it's, it's far less as well. And so if you have a benchmark or you have like actionable data then you're able to improve. So essentially, we see it as a tool and a resource that they can use and they can say, look, last year, we had only four films that had female directors. This year, we have eight. It's not quite there yet, but we're getting there. We're improving. Emma's passion to build something with a purpose and to support women came from her experiences when she was going to VCs to raise money for a previous startup. I was raising money for a different company and I really only ever realized I was like a woman when I moved to America. And I was kind of told, you know, time and time again, like this is kind of what you are. This is the box you fit into. Whereas in Ireland, you know, I graduated in top 1% of my country and got an academic scholarship to Trinity College and, um, you know, led and co-led the Dublin Youth Orchestra and got on really well and everything that I put my mind to as, you know, other girls have, have done before. And then I came here and it was like, impossible to raise money only two percent of vc capital goes to women and when i started to learn about this i was like one this is a massive opportunity to fund projects because there's literally no competition out there so if you put money into the female market which is the largest mature market in terms of size and spend you're going to do really well so i was like okay here's a great business opportunity but also i was like how unfair is that that we actually don't have access to capital because the people holding the purse strings are usually male and so When I learned this raising money for my own company, I decided if I'm going to be putting all this time and effort into a company, I'm going to look at what opportunities are out there where I can actually help make a profitable business that's purposeful and that helps women who are also being underrepresented in other areas. And so we decided to create the Wild Index or the Wild Stamp that actually highlights how diverse content is to force and encourage, if you want to put it in a nice way, um, representation in Hollywood so that women don't have to go through this. And so it's if we don't have any kind of measurable data, if we don't have benchmarks, if we don't have an index, if we don't have a stamp that brings our attention to it, it goes unnoticed. And the other side of that on the kind of, that's kind of like the the mission side, but on the user side, that that story of me and my friends like wanting to see more female led, female written without even realizing that that's what it was like subconscious. You know, we didn't even realize that's what we were doing. We were craving because such few titles have full female cast and have female directors and female writers that when it does come out, we're all going to see it because they're like, hey, that's me. You know, it makes sense. It resonates with me. And it's the same with Crazy Rich Asians. Look how well that did. That just shows you that there's communities that are just starving and dying for a representation that's real and authentic. And how do you do that? You hire people who have that lived experience. It's impossible for a man to know what it's like to be a millennial young woman because that's not your default. It's not a problem. That's fine. But it's great when it is a woman who's telling the story because it's real. And so that creates an opportunity. It's a business you know, if that's appealing to women, let's create it. Women's led content outperforms male led content by 38%. That just shows you that people are dying to see themselves represented. So for us, we were like, if that's the case, let us aggregate that content and make it easy for women to discover that content. And then as we grow, start to create that content and encourage networks to produce more of it. And the way that Wild will be monetized comes from three different streams. The first is the traditional um, subscription-based model. Um, So we have a free entry model like Spotify does. um, And then we have a premium model where you don't have advertisements. Um, The second then is um, advertisements. So because we have this like highly engaged, highly motivated, um, educated audience, um, it's very lucrative and highly targeted. And then the third or the tertiary um, revenue stream for us is shoppable content. And because 85% of purchases 
that are made online are driven based off of what um, someone has seen on a TV show or in a movie, which is a crazy stat. I didn't realize it was so high until we were kind of looking at ways to create different revenue streams so that unlike Netflix, we're not just solely, you know, relying on subscriptions. And then we were also seeing, well, what does our audience care about? And like for millennial women, being able to see and buy has become a behavior with Instagram shopping and, you know, fashion bloggers that has become normalized for us. Um, And so we're going to continue to test it. Um, We're not launching with it, but it's definitely something we're hoping to roll out a year or two, probably into the second year of, of launch. And just to give you an idea of when you can expect to see the Wild platform. So the stamp should come out before Christmas and the streaming platform should be out by the middle of the summer next year in 2020. And if you are interested in what Emma is building, I would like to support the business. So I guess the ask I have of the digitalized Irish community is to support um, support small businesses, um, sign up to them, um, download the apps, go to their websites, check them out, tell your friends. Um, and then also if you're interested in um, supporting financially or fu- and funding a company like ours, which we would love, we're raising our seed round right now. Um, which is exciting. And we have some really great investors, um, such as like Eric Schmidt, who's the former CEO of Google. Um, We have David Steinberg and John Scully's company, Zeta Global, who John Scully was the former CEO of Apple. He's invested in us as well, Birch Creative Capital. So we have some really, really key, amazing players who are um, supporting us, which is so fantastic. Um, And I would really love to add some women to that list. So, you know, (laughs) if there's any Wealthy women out there with deep pockets, holla for a dollar (laughs) or holler for your dollar. (laughs) And if you want to check out more about Wild. So if you want to keep in touch with Wild and get wild with us and be part of the Wild family. (laughs) Spelled like Oscar Wilde, you know, I had to represent my people. So um, it's uh, thewild.tv is our website and we would love you to sign up um, and then follow us on Instagram at wildtv. That is Emma Waldron, the CEO and founder of Wild. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the launch of their streaming platform in 2020. So I have the fortune of living in a city where public transport is good enough to not have to drive to work. But there are a lot of people in New York City and in most major cities around the world where the daily frustration of trying to find a parking space is just infuriating. And it was actually this exact frustration that led Garrett Flower, the founder of Park PMP, to start his business. So Park PMP started uh, about three years, three and a half years ago when I bought a car for the first time. I was driving through Dublin and traffic was mental, congestion. Um, I couldn't find parking anywhere. So I was driving up and down for about 20 to 25 minutes and I started to notice um, all of these empty spaces in front of people's driveways. Uh, front of their houses to all these free driveways and essentially I was so frustrated at the time that I thought I'd chance my arm pulled into the into the driveway knocked on a door and this lady opened so I asked her is there any chance I can just park here for a few hours and she said sure so thankfully I uh, left the car there and a few hours later I came back with chocolates 10 euros and a new business idea so essentially, I, uh, the idea was to create the Airbnb of parking spaces. And that, so that then led into um, myself researching the business idea for, for the, the next couple of weeks uh, to a point where I really couldn't see a reason why not to do it. We, we, I had found uh, other competitors that were actually scaling quite quickly in the US market, Spot Hero and Parkways. And I started to think, okay, well, we're in Europe and I don't really see any big players here. So that's when I decided to really go after this new business idea. With a bit of market research done and a solid idea in mind, Garrett now had to start figuring out how to turn this concept into a viable business. First off, it's a technology place, so you're going to need um, technical uh, people on board. And then I I realized that what I really need is a technical co-founder. And that's what I went out and searched for. So I started uh, looking for first different agencies to help me build the product. Then I started looking for different CTOs. And then I luckily one day was um, at a Bank of Ireland um, startup pitching event and saw a a tech team on stage pitching another business idea, um, which I thought was rubbish. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I went up to them after and I said, guys, I'd love to pitch you a new business idea. Um, would you meet me uh, and discuss it? And thankfully, they all said yes. So that night, I met my uh, co-founder um, and CTO, Dan Dan Paul, uh, and the team. So the team of uh, Kyo, Diego, Jackson, Android, uh, iOS, and back-end developers. The guys decided to come on board, and I gave them a very clear plan. Look, I want to build an MVP in 30 days. In that 30 days, I'll go out and list new spaces in the market. And um, with that, we'll be able to show an MVP to investors and raise money pre-revenue for this new idea. If we can't do it, then we part ways. If we can do it, like, it, it, I won't be able to pay you, but I can pay you in shares. And that's, that's how we began. So luckily in the first month, the guys were able to work night and day and built uh, a working app um, on iOS and Android and a website that allowed the booking and listing of space. And I w- went out knocking door to door people's homes, asking would they like to rent out their parking space, which I got 300 plus uh, spaces uh, listed by the end of the month. So it was a really fun time. And we used that uh, initial um, MVP and, um, and sites listed to raise half a million euros um, after six months. And very early on, Park PMP started to see success in the Irish market. So we were growing quite quickly. Um, we quickly became, after one year, the largest marketplace in Ireland. We had over 15,000 spaces. We were working with every major car park operator, uh, from Q Park to Euro Car Parks. And we had just signed up the largest venue uh, venue manager in the country, MCD, which is, which is a huge uh, venue promoter. Um, we we then realized that we had to scale outside of Ireland. So we started looking at the European market to see where we could expand to. We did a lot of analysis to see which countries we thought would suit us best. And we started to focus very clearly on the Netherlands and Belgium as our first landing uh, countries. We were trying to run this product and scale quickly to become one of the European players. And we were finding it evident that being based in Ireland, looking at Irish investors, we were we weren't going to get as, as as much value for our money, uh, value for our shares, and that so we started to look at investors outside of Ireland. We started meeting VCs from from all over Europe, um, to raise a Series A. At this stage, we had raised another um, seed uh, extension round of of a million euros, and we were growing quite quickly, um, to 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 keep up with our competitors. What we found was that the VCs were very interested in ourselves and in this space and in mobility in general. What we found was that they they liked our metrics, but they thought it they they ended up investing in companies that were based in larger countries. So our competitors in Paris, for example, the VC liked us more, liked our numbers, liked our metrics. They were better than the competitors but they went and invested in the Parisian competitor because they were based in a bigger market. So what we quickly realized after the, after the, the year or so of trying to raise a, a larger Series A round is that when you're raising a consumer-based uh, platform, you need to quite quickly establish yourself in a bigger market or else it will become a detriment. So we were in a position where we had become... We had about sixty thousand registered users. This is this is uh, at the towards the end of last year, um, biggest in Ireland uh, marketplace parking uh, people every 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 few few minutes. Um, we had grown into Belgium and the Netherlands, but now we had to think differently. We had to think strategically. How are we going to continue growing? Because if we if we can't raise a bigger round now, our competitors our competitors are going to leave us behind. So where are we going to go next? And that's when Garrett spotted an opening in the market to build an office parking management system. So right now we're doing uh, just over a million GBV per year uh, through the marketplace. And about 12 months ago, we rolled out our newest SaaS product um, called Park Office. And Park Office started scaling quickly. 
essentially what Park Office does is it manages large corporate parking uh, through software. And that product was built as a unique uh, bespoke build for a large pharma company initially. But then they introduced it to another company. And then they liked it so much that we we started seeing these glowing reviews and the amount they were willing to pay us for it. We said, hey, you know, this might be an opportunity for us. And then we started to approach these different customers. What we were excited about is that over the last nine months since going commercially live, we've been able to sign up 20 customers, large corporate customers with huge brands initially like uh, CBRE, um, Colliers, like massive real estate companies, to Factset, which is a publicly traded company here in, in Connecticut in the US. And um, what's exciting us more and more now is you're seeing all of these huge brand names. And where do Park PMP see themselves in the next six months? So the vision for Park PMP very much is uh, towards the US. And um, we don't want to fall into the same mistake we we had before where we were just, we, we had focused most of our attention on ireland spent most of our money and then when we, we tried to scale out we had to raise more funds and found that quite difficult um, so right now what we've done is we're we're we've pivoted towards this park office SaaS product and which is showing some great metrics great results and we're going after the U.S. market early. Uh, I moved over to New York and I'm growing the U.S. operation over here. I have the team based back in, in Dublin, but we also have developers remote across the world. It's the new way of working. And I'm very much focused on growing out the numbers across the U.S. and raising a Series A to grow the business from here. To support Garrett and Park PMP, my ask for the digital Irish community is if you know any companies that have parking problems, if you're working in a company that has parking problems or you know any real estate managers who who may be interested, please let, get in touch at gareth at parkpmp.com. It's G-A-R-R-E-T and, uh, or check out parkpmp.com uh, and get in touch. That was Gareth Flower, the founder and CEO of Park PMP and Park Office. If you would like to hear more from Gareth, He recently did a live interview on the Entrepreneur Experiment podcast in Dublin. I want to say thank you to Ronan, Emma and Garrett for taking their time to join me on the podcast. And thank you for listening. I am so grateful for the emails and LinkedIn messages that we have received with feedback on the podcast and the suggestions of guests to bring on the show. This is what the podcast is all about. We want to hear your feedback and suggestions and strengthen this global Irish business network. If you are interested in being featured on the show or have suggestions, you can email hello at digitalirish.com or visit our website at digitalirish.com and you can also connect with us on social through hashtag digitalirish. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It helps us so much. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode in association with the Bowery Common. I'm Patrick McAndrew and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.